Chapter Thirty of the Ranchman by Charles Alden Seltzer. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Parsons has human instincts. Elam Parsons stood on the front porch of the Arrow Ranch House for a long time after Marion and Martha departed, watching them as they slowly negotiated the narrow trail that led towards Dawes. Something of the man's guilt assailed his consciousness as he stood there, a conception of the miserable part he had played in the girl's life. No doubt, had not fate and Carrington played a mean trick on Parsons in robbing him of his money and his prospects, the man would not have entertained the thoughts he entertained at this moment, for success would have made a reckoning with conscience a remote possibility, dim and far. And perhaps it was not conscience that was now troubling Parsons. At least Parsons did not lay the burden of his present thoughts upon so intangible a chimera. Parsons was too much of a materialist to admit he had a conscience. But a twinge of something seized Parson as he watched the girl ride away and bitter thoughts racked his soul. He could not, however, classify his emotions. So he stood there on the porch, undecided, vacillating, in the grip of a vague disquiet. Parsons sat on the porch until long afternoon, for, after Marion and Martha had vanished into the haze of distance, Parsons dropped into a chair and let his chin sink to his chest. He did not get up to prepare food for himself. He did not think of eating, for the big, silent ranch house and the gloomy, vacant appearance of the other buildings drew the man's attention to the aching emptiness of his own life. He had sought to gain everything, scheming, planning, plotting dishonestly, and taking unfair advantage, robbing people without compunction, and he had gained nothing. Yes. He had gained Carrington's contempt. The recollection of Carrington's treatment of him fired his passions with a thousand licking, leaping flames. In his gloomy meditations over the departure of the girl, he had almost forgotten Carrington. But he thought of Carrington now, and he sat stiff and rigid in the chair, glowering, his lips in a pout, his soul searing with hatred but even the nursing of that passion failed to satisfy Parsons. Something lacked. There was still that conviction of utter baseness, of his own baseness to torture him. And at last, towards evening, he discovered that he longed for the girl. He wanted to be near her. He wanted to do something for her, to undo the wrong he had done her. He wanted to make some sort of reparation. So the man assured himself, but he knew that deep in his inner consciousness lurked the dread knowledge that Taylor was aware of his baseness, for Taylor had overheard the conversation between Carrington and himself on the train, and Parsons feared that should Taylor by any chance escape Keats and his men and return to the Arrow to find Marion gone, he would vent his rage and fury upon the man who had sinned against the woman he loved. That was the emotion which dominated Parsons as he sat on the porch. It was the emotion 
that made the man fervently desire to make reparation to the girl. It was the emotion that finally moved him out of his chair and upon a horse that he found in the stable to ride towards Dawes in the hope of finding her. Parsons, too, stopped at the Malarkey cabin. He discovered that Marion had left there shortly before, after having refused Mrs. Malarkey's proffer of shelter until the charge against Taylor could be disproved. Parson listened impatiently to the woman's voluble defense of Taylor and her condemnation of Keats and all those who were leagued against the Arrow owner. And then Parsons rode on. Far out in the basin, indistinct in the twilight haze, he saw Marion and Martha riding towards Dawes, and he urged his horse in an effort to come up with them before they reached the bottom of the long, gradual rise that would take them into town. Parsons had got within half a mile of them when he saw them halt and wait the coming of three horsemen, who advanced towards them from the opposite direction. Parsons did not feel like joining the group, for just at that moment he felt as though he could not bear to have anyone see his face. They might have discovered the guilt in it. So he waited. He saw the three men ride close to the other riders. He watched in astonishment while one of the strange riders pursued one of the women, catching her. Parsons saw it all. He did not ride forward, for he was in the grip of a mighty terror that robbed him of power to move, for he knew one of the strange riders was Carrington. He would have recognized him among a thousand other men. Parsons watched the three men climb the big slope that led to the great house on the flat-topped hill. For many minutes after they had reached the crest of the hill, Parsons sat motionless on his horse, gazing upward. And when he saw a light flare up in one of the rooms of the big house, he cursed, his face convulsed with impotent rage. Marion Harlan did not yield to the overpower weakness that seized her after she realized that further resistance to Carrington would be useless. And instead of yielding to the hysteria that threatened her, she clenched her hands and bit her lips in an effort to retain her composure. She succeeded. And during the progress of her captor's horse up the long slope, she kept a good grip on herself fortifying herself against what might come when she and her captor reached the big house. When they reached the crest of the hill, Carrington ordered the two men to take Martha round to the back of the house and confine her in one of the rooms. One man was to guard her. The other was to wait on the front porch until Carrington called him. The girl had decided to make one more struggle when Carrington dismounted with her. But though she fought hard and bitterly, she did not succeed in escaping Carrington, and the latter finally lifted her in his arms and carried her into the front room, the room in which Carrington had fought with Taylor the day Taylor had killed the three men who had ambushed him. Carrington lighted a lamp. It was this light Parsons had seen from the basin, placed it on a shelf, and, in its light, grinned triumphantly at the girl. 
"'Well, we are here,' he said. In his voice was that passion that had been in it the other time, when he had pursued her into the house, and she had escaped by hiding in the attic. She cringed from him, backing away a little, and, noting the movement, he laughed hoarsely. "'Don't worry,' he said, at least for an hour or two. "'I've got something more important on my mind. "'Do you know what it is?' he demanded, grinning hugely. "'It's Taylor.' He suddenly seemed to remember that he did not know why she had been abroad at dusk on the Dawes Trail, and he came close to her. "'Did you see Keats today?' She did not answer, meeting his gaze fairly, her eyes flashing with scorn and contempt. But he knew from the flame in her eyes that she had seen Keats, and he laughed derisively. "'So you saw him,' he jeered. "'And you know that he came for Taylor? Did he find Taylor at the Arrow?' Again she did not answer, and he went on, suspecting that Taylor had not been at the Arrow, and that Keats had gone to search for him. No, Keats didn't find him. That's plain enough. I should have enjoyed being there to hear Keats tell you that Taylor had killed your father. You heard that, didn't you? Yes, he added, a grin broadening. You heard that. So that's why you left the Arrow. Well, I don't blame you for leaving. He turned toward the door and wheeled again to face her. You'll enjoy this, he sneered. You've been so thick with Taylor. Bah, he added, as he saw her face redden at the insult. I've known where you stood with Taylor ever since I caught you flirting with him on the station platform the day we came to Dawes. That's why you went to the Arrow from here, refusing my attentions to give yourself to the man who killed your father. He laughed and saw her writhe under the sound of it. It hurts, huh? he said venomously. Well, this will hurt, too. Keats went out to get Taylor, but he will never bring Taylor in alive. He has orders to kill him, understand? That's why I've got more important business than you to attend to for the next few hours. I'm going to Dawes to find out if Keats has returned. And when Keats comes in with the news that Taylor is done for, I'm coming back here for you. Calling the man who was waiting on the porch, Carrington directed him to watch the girl, and then, with a last grin at her, he went out, mounted his horse, and rode the trail towards Dawes. As he rode, he laughed maliciously, for he had not told her that the charge against Taylor was a false one, that, so far as he knew, Taylor was not guilty of murdering her father. End of chapter 30